News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. Why is it that we always think that people today aren't as law-abiding as, you know, people back in the day used to be? I mean, you've heard this. Maybe you've even said it before. Oh, we never did that when we were kids. Chances are you probably did. But it's typical that we think today is just so much worse than when we were younger. So the question does become, is it? I mean, there's a study that's been done on this. It's pretty comprehensive, actually, involving uh, people from 60 countries. And it traced how people feel about morality and whether that had changed over time. Well, Dr. Adam Mastriani is an experimental psychologist and author of the Experimental History Newsletter and joins us now to talk about it. Thank you very much for being here. Hey, thanks for having me. Is this something that you think we've always said? Like, do we always think, oh, it was better back then? It certainly seems like it. So uh, you can look pretty far back into the past, into ancient Egypt, ancient Rome and Greece, and find people saying things like, you know, people lie now, but our leaders used to be honest. Uh, you used to be, uh, children used to uh, obey their parents and be quiet. Now they're loud and unruly. Right. Um, and so these complaints don't seem to change all that much through the centuries. Of course, that's, that's not the same as a comprehensive study, but it's easy to find people saying this a long time ago. Oh, that is so true. Also, the issue of morality. Are we, there's the idea that, oh, we were so much more like morally upright back in the day. Has, have, have our senses of that changed over time? So in terms of what we mean by morality, um, there's, there's certainly change over time. Things that uh, there's one study from the 1950s where uh, people say a majority of people say, I think it's immoral for people to wear Bermuda shorts on the street. Obviously, that's changed. But in our study, what we wanted to focus on was this part of this thing that we call morality, where most people would agree and there hasn't been much change over time. So no one thinks it's OK to walk into work and throw a cup of coffee into someone's face. Um, No one thinks it's all right to call someone names, to steal from them. These things, have these things changed over time? And we find that people all over the world think that uh, those things are worse today than they used to be. And we find pretty compelling evidence that there hasn't been any change, at least as long for as long as we have data. Okay, so we think they're worse, but what you're saying is they're actually not. Yes. So if you ask people... um, how kind, honest, nice and good are people today versus 10 years ago, 20 years ago? We've asked this question you know, 100 different ways. Uh, are people less ethical than they used to be? Do people treat each other with, with more or less respect and courtesy than they used to? Over and over again, people will say it's worse today than it was in the past, whether that's 10 years ago, 20 years ago, 50 years ago. It just gets worse and worse. And then when we look at uh, studies that actually track these things over time, so people are asked, how often do you encounter incivility at work? Were you treated with respect all day yesterday? Have you, within the past year, uh, donated your time or money to a charity? These things are flat over time. Um, So every year, people say that things are getting worse, but every year, we get the same results as we did the year before. So this has been my argument when people complain about this. I go, you know what? The, the only thing that's different is now we just hear about it more. We have more ways of hearing about this bad behavior, whereas I'm sure it was still happening way back when we just didn't know about it. Yeah, I think that's certainly a possibility that um, the and, and in fact, we think this is part of the driver of what makes people believe this is that the main thing that you hear about people that you don't know is that they're behaving badly. Um, people that you don't know, they're lying, stealing, cheating, killing. Um, this is what the news is in large part, and for good reason. It's important to know about those things, especially when our leaders are doing them. But it can contribute to this vision of the world where beyond the borders of your personal world, things are really bad. And we think that's one part of why people think this is going on. But that alone isn't enough to create it. We think there's a second phenomenon that's necessary, which is uh, this bias that we know about from memory research where the badness of bad memories fades faster than the goodness of good memories. So, uh, so for instance, if, uh, if you get turned down for your school dance, that's a pretty bad experience at the time, but 20 years later, it's maybe a funny memory. So the badness fades. If you have a great high school dance at the time, it's a good experience. 20 years later, it probably still feels pretty good to think about it. Not as good as it did to experience it. And this turns out to be what happens to memories on average. Both the badness and the goodness stayed, but badness stayed faster. 
And if you put that together with mainly encountering bad information about the world out there, you can create this illusion where every day the world looks bad, but every day you remember yesterday being better. Of course, yesterday you thought the exact same thing. Okay, that makes perfect sense to me. That, that It's actually our brains that are, are encouraging us almost to remember things this way, right? <laughs> yes, and it makes total sense that we would have these biases, that we would pay a lot of attention to negative information in our world. This is part of how we survived in our ancestral environment. We paid a lot more attention to the possibility of a tiger in the bushes than uh, you know, the sunny day around us. That's how we survived. So it makes sense that we would pay more attention to negative information. It also makes sense that negative information would fade more in memory. This is what helps us enjoy our lives. If every bad thing remained as bad when you remembered it 20 years later, we'd be pretty sad all the time. The unfortunate side effect of these two probably fortunate mental phenomena is that it can lead to biases where you might think that the world today is worse than it used to be. Um, so that's the downside. But I think there's a lot of upside to, the, to those as well. Yeah. Okay. And how did they measure this? How did they figure out going back in time what people were feeling? So uh, a number of different ways. So um, so we asked two different questions or, or, or trying to answer two different questions. First is, do people believe that things have changed? And so the way we do that is um, we have all this, uh, all these surveys that have been done uh, since 1949, asking people questions like, you know, do you think the human race is getting better or worse from the standpoint of moral conduct? Do you think people treated each other with more respect in the past? There's hundreds of different questions like this. And over and over again, we see a majority of people saying it's worse. Uh, we also did some of our own studies where we asked people how kind, honest, nice and good are people today versus any point in the past. And people say they're worse and worse. Um, so that's the way we measure that first question. Do people think that things are worse? And then are things actually worse? We also have, uh, we have nearly 12 million data points where people are asked um, not to remember the past, but to report on their experience. Were you treated with respect all day yesterday? Have you done these various nice things? Have people done these nice things to you? And we can see over time whether people's answers change, and they don't. Um, one more way that we can get at this question is um, for decades, scientists have been bringing people into the lab and putting them in various situations that allow them to be to choose a, a greedy option or a generous option. The details are always different, but but that part is always the same. Um, you can be generous with someone else in the lab or you can choose to be greedy. We've been doing this since 1956 and we have data going all the way to 2017. And some other researchers fortunately put all that data together and just wanted to know, are people more likely to be greedy or generous over time? They thought that people would be more greedy. In fact, they found that people are more likely to be generous to a stranger in the lab today than they were a generation ago. We took that data and just asked a new set of participants, you get, can you guess these results? We know what they are. And by the way, we'll pay you extra money if you get this right, how, the, how this has changed over time. People thought that people are more likely to be greedy now than they were uh, a, a generation ago, when in fact, it's the opposite. Wow. Um, so even when you make the question really specific, when you pay people to get the answer right, and when you can compare their answers to what we know to be true, you still find this illusion of moral decline. We don't really have very much faith in each other, do we? <laughs> no, what we, what we do have faith in is the people that we know. And uh, people exempt mm. their personal worlds from this narrative of decline. Right. So if you ask people about the people that they have known for the past 15 years, they'll say they're better today than they were 15 right. years ago. And so everyone is standing on their own little island saying, <laughs> my island's fine and getting better. It's all these other islands out there that are right. even worse. But if you visit those islands, people are like, no, my island is fine and your <laughs> island's getting better. So somebody's got to be wrong about this. It's always somebody else. Uh, Dr. Adam Mastrani, thank you so much for your time. That is Dr. Adam Mastorani. He's an experimental psychologist and author of the Experimental History Newsletter. Scott Schantz is with us now. Scott, this is what happens when it rains after a long time without rain, right? Oh, yeah. I even this morning had to like stop myself several times, slow down, because it just everything feels darker, harder to see. Uh, people are taking more time, being more cautious, which is good, but it's definitely slower. Oh, and there are a lot of problems already. So we will continue to keep you up to date on that traffic situation this morning. But so, Scott, did you hear this conversation we were just having about whether or not morality really is declining? Oh, my gosh, yes. So people think it's not anybody I I know it's other people. Uh-huh.
And do you feel that that is what, I think that's very human nature. Uh, yeah, I, I do think that. I think that we're prone to, you know, look to somebody else who, who it's easier to do that than to put the blame on ourselves. But I don't, I don't think that. I think that people are, are generally good. And when called upon to do the right thing, people will. I just think that we get bogged down in the day-to-day life of, you know, um, the, the, the doing. Let's take the example of litter. Because John Strait tagged me in a post on the weekend about litter, particularly in downtown Vancouver and on the west and you know, the west end by the beaches there. And boy, has that gotten a lot of traction. People are sounding off. And I see all the comments because I was tagged in the original post. And so I'm like, oh, people, they really, and what I heard overwhelmingly from people in all those comments was, boy, it wasn't like this when I was a kid. Right. And I'm thinking, wasn't it? Like, wasn't it also like people were littering back in the day? Yeah. And obviously I, as kids, we were told not to, but I, are we remembering that differently? Oh, I think so. I definitely think so. It was I, The litter example is a great one because I think that was way worse back in the day. I love the scene in Anchorman, and I know that this is a joke, but it's set in the, yes. in the 80s, right? Where they're walking through the park, like eating ice cream, and they're just throwing their stuff on the ground because that was normal back then. People yeah. just threw stuff. I remember riding in like my friend's cars and we just throw garbage out the window. Somebody else's problem. But I have seen people do this. I have seen people at a red light open the car door and throw garbage out. But you know what we do now that I don't think we did back then? Publicly shame we people? We publicly shame them or <laughs> we'll go, I've seen this where people will go and like pick the litter back up and go to the person and say, excuse me, this fell out of your car. You know, not necessarily accuse them of littering, but hmm. because you assume that it's like you would never litter. So this must have fallen out of your car. So and, you're saying we're more, we are more moral in that regard as opposed to back in the day. I think so. I And I think that people just, we, we all are sort of struggling with this, you know, making the world work. And it's always been that way, I think. But now I think that people will do the right thing if, if called upon to do the right thing. I have had this conversation so many times with people in my house, because obviously the last couple of years have been very rough. And people always thought, oh, this, oh, it's so much harder right now. Like this is, um, and I thought, well, was it harder than this post-World War One and the Spanish flu hit? Totally. Probably not. Was it, you know, harder than this during the late 1960s when you had the Vietnam War and all the protests and civil rights protests and everything going on? Probably not. Like it was probably very similar is what I'm saying. Yeah, I, th- I think you're absolutely right. And it's just the, the perception. Yes. And I think it's okay to like have these things to, that we have to uh, overcome. And in some cases, we have to overcome them on a personal level, but in some, and in some cases, we have to like bond together as a, as a community and as a group to, to overcome these things. But yeah, I think that people are inherently good. I and, know you do. And, it's amazing. But, but they are, <laughs> Simi, but they are. If they weren't, we would have eaten each other as a society a long time ago. There's way more good people than bad people I do there. believe that. I do believe that. Although I do think also some people just need a little nudge sometimes. Sure. Right? It's hard. It's, you get into the spiral of negativity and it's hard to kind of pull yourself out of it. That can definitely happen. And I think that w- that is because there's so much information out there right now. There's so much negativity. It's really hard to pull yourself out of it. And that is something that previous generations didn't face. That is true. Wow. Look at us agreeing on something. Because I know that's not going to happen later on Probably in the show. Not. Right? Probably not. <laughs> Scott, thank you for that. If you want to weigh in on our discussion about morality, please do. Simi at cknw.com or you can call or text our buzz line. This is Mornings with Simi. Time now for us to check in with Vaughn Palmer from the Vancouver Sun. Good morning, Vaughn. Good morning, Simi. All right. We're starting with Nanaimo. We're, the more we hear about Nanaimo, it sounds like they've got a lot of issues going on. They sure do, and you can count on the mayor of Nanaimo, Leonard Krogh, to tell us all about it. For a, you know, He's a former NDP MLA. You think he might have a nice word to say about the provincial government from time to time, but he doesn't. Uh, he certainly serves his community well in speaking out because he gets a lot of attention. Here he is this week, the problem with uh, heart attack treatment in Nanaimo. And he says, uh, hey, we're like a third world country here in Nanaimo in terms of cardiac care. You don't get the kind of first class treatment you do down there in Victoria. He says the dividing line between first class and third world cardiac care is the Malahat, that big uh, drive uh, south of uh, Nanaimo between Nanaimo and Victoria. 
He says that uh, heart attack patients in Nanaimo aren't getting the kind of care they should be getting. Uh, They're going to have to go to Victoria to get the care, and it puts their lives at risk. So fairly another outspoken performance by Leonard Crowe. Okay, and so what exactly is he talking about? What kind of care? Yeah, so there's a group of people in Nanaimo, doctors and community leaders who've all banded together to lobby the provincial government for a particular kind of cardiac treatment. So thanks to them for explaining it, because I had to look it up. But catheterization lab. So when you have a heart attack, a serious one, the key is, do they get your arteries open and the blood going the right way fast enough? 90 minutes you're starting to get death of the heart muscle tissue. Well, so there isn't a lab to do that, to catheterize the arteries and open them up in Nanaimo. The nearest one is in Victoria. Victoria is 100 kilometers away, and with the traffic on the island highway these days, uh, it's going to take you longer than 90 minutes to get there. So that's the basic point. They need one of those labs in Nanaimo. They say that for the size of population, around Nanaimo in the North Island. It's the largest community in Canada without easy access to that kind of lab. They want one. It's not cheap. Simi, $150 million is their estimate. A local hospital uh, foundation says they'll help pay for it. But basically, they're saying to uh, Victoria, give us one. Uh, We need it. Lives are at risk in Nanaimo. And uh, I think you put this together with two or three other issues that uh, Mayor Krogh has been leading on, crime, uh, homeless encampments, ferry service, and you'd say uh, (laughs) there, there are opposition members in British Columbia that don't do as good a job of holding the government to account as the former NDP MLA, now mayor of Nanaimo. Because he was also doing it recently and talking about the public safety issue. Yeah. He got a lot of traction on that one. He does. And I mean, we go to him because he's an experienced politician, very eloquent, very outspoken. And, you know, it's it's interesting to contrast him because, of course, Vancouver Island is almost entirely represented in the legislature by New Democrats, Uh, cabinet ministers and MLAs. There's uh, there's uh, Adam Olson, the Green from Saanich, but otherwise it's NDP territory. And yet you will search the public record in vain for any NDP MLAs or cabinet ministers speaking publicly about their government's failings on crime, housing prices, affordability, public safety downtowns, ferry service, health care. Uh, and then there's Leonard Crowe. And he's kind of a one man. As I said, there are opposition members or supporters on the island who speak out too. But I have to say, uh, if every mayor in British Columbia, and there are some that are effective at speaking out about the provincial government, but Leonard Krogh is unusual. He is not uh, afraid of his own political base in Nanaimo. He was handily reelected last year. And I think he just says, I'm going to whack him and I'm going to get some attention and get some coverage. And who knows, uh, maybe the provincial government will smarten up. And the next thing you know, there'll be a press conference in Nanaimo with Health Minister Adrian Dix delivering the catheterization lab that heart patients in Nanaimo need. I wonder what the reaction is, though, in the government to hearing one of their former colleagues do this. <laughs> well, they kind of grumble about it privately, you know, and they go, oh, you know, Leonard is still bitter about blah, blah, blah. And they and, and the bitterness that's attributed to him. And I don't think it is bitterness, actually. I think it's a mayor doing his job. But privately, the New Democrats say, well, you know, when uh, John Horgan came in as as premier, He didn't appoint Leonard Krogh to cabinet. Leonard had been around a long time as an MLA. Well, that's true. He didn't. And then they say, you know, Leonard thought he was going to become Speaker of the Legislature under John Horgan. And then the New Democrats went out and recruited a a disgruntled liberal, Daryl Plekis, and made him Speaker. So they attribute this privately to bitterness. As I said, I don't think that's what drives Leonard Krogh. I think it's about stepping into the job of mayor. He was asked to run for mayor in Nanaimo, Simi, when the Nanaimo council was bitterly divided and dysfunctional. 
He resigned his seat in the legislature. He went to Nanaimo. He won handily. And he's done a very good job of turning that uh, council around. So, you know, I think uh, I can see why NDP backbenchers don't speak out against their own government. I assume from time to time they do rattle the cages of cabinet ministers in in caucus. But it is something else to see uh, just a, a former MLA, now mayor, uh, regularly holding the government's feet to the fire on legitimate issues that are affecting his community. Here's something we haven't talked about in a long time, Vaughn, and that's COVID. Yeah, COVID. So, Simi, as you know, I uh, collect uh, files and reports on paper, and they pile up in my office and eventually... Oh, I've seen it. I'm surprised <laughs> we can worry. find you. Yeah, and I, eventually I worry about the floor collapsing because of the weight of paper. And so I got stacks and stacks of stuff on COVID, and I'm looking at it over the summer and going, yeah, maybe time to start chucking this stuff out, put it in the shredder and into recycling. And then I start looking at the headlines, and COVID is back. It hasn't gone away. I see headlines in the British papers, uh, in the American papers, saying uh, COVID didn't take the summer off. Uh, there's a new variant out there called Eris, and it's on the rise And everybody's talking about, you know, we could be in for, uh, what would it be now? Year four of the fall with more COVID cases than we should be comfortable with. So here we go again. No kidding. Okay, so why do they think this is happening? Well, you're going to love one of them because you're talking about the big Taylor Swift uh, boomlet that's going on at the moment. So uh, I've seen headlines in both the UK and the US uh, suggesting that um, you can blame this on the surge of people who are crowding into theaters and concert halls for the Barbie movie and Oppenheimer and for Taylor Swift. Now, it does get attention and it got mine. I have been looking around at some of the more level-headed experts on this and they're saying, relax, uh, no, uh, if there is a surge in cases, and surge is probably too strong a word, or, although there is definitely a rise, and there's a new variant. <clears throat> They're saying, no, you know, uh, first of all, immunity is waning again. People had their boosters. They wear off eventually, and we should be looking at new boosters this fall, and we'll be getting them. And they're saying, look, uh, don't blame fans and moviegoers. Uh, All of us are traveling a lot more and traveling longer distances and being exposed to more other people carrying the virus. And it's the surge in travel, the return to more or less normal summer life, and not just uh, picking on a couple of movies and a bunch of Taylor Swift fans. I guess the, the problem here is, too, though, they're warning about the fall. We've heard this so many times before. How many people are going to pay attention? Well, uh, yeah, I think, you know, we're going to have to start talking about it and being aware of it is the first thing. Uh, Dr. Bonnie Henry has spoken out fairly recently just to say uh, there is going to be a fall booster campaign in British Columbia. She's calling the vaccines that are available. They're still being vetted by Health Canada, but they're the familiar manufacturers of vaccines. And she says, if those are approved, we'll be considering them updates And we'll be telling, starting with high-risk people of my age and immunocompromised and all that, people who haven't been vaccinated, telling all them to get vaccinated, and then the boosters will be available to everybody else. So that's one thing. Uh, And I think also, you know, uh, just awareness uh, that there's a new variant out there. And, you know, this keeps happening. Uh, The virus keeps mutating. And the new variant, uh, you know, we are probably headed semi to a world where you will get a uh, a vaccine uh, update every year for COVID, just as you do now for influenza. And I see yesterday the that group here in British Columbia, uh, POP, they call them, uh, the uh, Protect Our Province group, which includes some doctors, saying should be prepared for a triple whammy of virus infections this fall when the schools go back because you've got RSV and flu and a new variation of COVID. And they're saying we should be thinking again about doing more around masking in schools 
and air quality in schools and reducing risk for kids in school along with the rest of the population as well. So I think we'll be hearing more about this as, as fall approaches, but uh, it's, you know, we thought it was over and we act like it's over. It's not over. It is not. All right. Thank you for that, Vaughn. Bye-bye, Simi. This is Mornings with Simi. Let's check in with our Scott Shots this morning because he's going to be educating us about water restrictions. Good morning, Scott. Hi, how are you? I am good, thank you. I'm really interested to hear this discussion. Yeah, absolutely. There's something happening with uh, farmers and farming and water restrictions here in our province that is a little bit um, controversial and is causing some confusion and stuff. So we're going to dive into this. Uh, I, I'm speaking with um, MLA for the Couch and Valley and leader of the BC Green Party, Sonia Firstenau about essentially there has been uh, farms in the province need licenses to use groundwater because we're in a drought situation. This has been coming for several years and uh, now we're in a drought and they need these licenses. But it turns out that many, many of the farms that need the licenses don't have them. And now they're facing water uh, fines for not having those licenses. But one of the issues is that these are the same people that produce our food. And we're also facing um, food shortages and inflation and all of those type of things. So uh, joining me now to discuss it is uh, BC Green Party leader, Sonia know, And I thank you so much for being here. Can you like explain uh, what's happening with this licensing groundwater situation? So it goes back to 2016. There was a piece of legislation that was passed in the BC legislature called the Water Sustainability Act. And one part of that legislation included the need for non-residential well users. So anybody who gets water from a well that isn't using it strictly for their homes needed to apply for a license. And the reason for this was for the province to have a better understanding and be able to collect data on how much water is currently being used in order to be able to plan for Uh, What we're seeing exactly right now, drought conditions, increased water scarcity, and to create the conditions for really evidence-informed water security in the long run. The provincial government changed in 2017. We've had an NDP government, and there was not a lot of really effective effort. There was some effort to inform well users that they had to do this. Um, They extended the deadline to 2022, March 2022. But by the time that deadline came, only 40% of well users had actually applied for a license and 60% had not. And I think a huge number of those people that did not really just either didn't know or didn't understand the need to apply for a, a water license. Now we find ourselves in drought conditions in a couple of different watersheds, including here in Cowichan. And farmers have been issued cease and desist orders on their wells because their wells aren't licensed. What is the result if a person of the people that are unlicensed currently, if they continue to keep using water, they're going to get fined or will they have their water turned off? What happens in those cases? My understanding is they will get fined and those fines will be uh, on a daily basis for every day that they continue to use water. So the farmers that I've been uh, talking with and, and working with have gone to uh, local water purveyors and have put cisterns on their farms and are bringing in water. Now, the irony here is that the water they're bringing in is from the exact same water system that they are using. Um, And so this isn't solving the drought conditions or the water scarcity conditions, um, but it is creating an additional cost for the farmers. So you say that only 40% of those who would need licenses actually ended up applying. And so the NDP government didn't didn't take any notice that so many people who would require this this legislation just didn't do it. Yeah, and I'm on the record in the legislature year over year saying, you know, what are you doing to ensure that people understand this? This needs to be seen as a mission. We're on a mission together to ensure we have water sustainability in the future. 
There's this article about it, as I'm sure you're aware, in the TIE. Mm -hmm. It mentions that of the 40% that have applied, the licensing hasn't even been processed yet. So you can imagine how far behind they would be if, you know, 80, 90, even 100% of those who needed it had applied. It it really does sort of feel like they weren't um, anticipating this. But one of the questions that I have is, if this dates back to 2016, it really feels like there would have been time for for those people who need this to get on top of it if they had been properly informed. This is it. And and I'm a teacher um, before I got into uh, politics. And if 40% of my class passed a test and 60% failed, um, that is a problem with the teaching, not with the students. Again, I bring this back to the government had a very important role to play in supporting the people that needed to get these license applications in and also to ask themselves, what are the things that we value? We value food security. So we are going to make sure that those people that are growing food locally, they have our support and they are getting through this process. So what what mm-hmm. would you like to see happen now? What I'm hoping is that the government will pull together a table of all of the the different stakeholders that are being impacted by this and have a a conversation and come up with a plan for how do we solve this uh, situation we're in. Thank you so much. Uh, Sonia first and now MLA for the couch and Valley and leader of the BC green party. She makes some good points. I think Simi. Now, Scott, I've been following along with what's been happening in the southwestern part of the United States, and they've got some serious groundwater problems. Sure, yeah. Like even in California, where they had all those storms and that huge snowpack and all that flooding, they it did not like replenish their groundwater, and they still have wells that are running dry there. Uh, And water is strictly regulated in those areas. They fight over the Colorado River in three different states. And so they have to, right? Because that's a very critical area of growing food. BC hasn't even done that first step yet of monitoring the water. That's what we're trying to do. And so how can these farmers argue that they... They don't. They didn't get a license, therefore they have to wait. Well, and I'm not arguing, and like I don't think that they shouldn't have to get a license. I do agree with that part. I think that the rollout of this just has not gone the as smoothly. Ten years. Ten years, yes, but okay. Forty percent of they say there's about twenty thousand farms that this should should be affected by this. Only eight thousand, actually less than eight thousand. So forty percent, like we discussed, is the number that have actually gotten the licenses or have applied for the licenses. And now they have said that of that forty percent, less than eight thousand, not even all of them have been processed yet. They said the people that have applied but haven't actually received the license are going to get an exemption, but they haven't even worked through that forty percent. And here we are in drought conditions. Wh- where would we be if eighty percent, ninety percent, a hundred percent had applied? It, they weren't ready to handle that. They were never even expecting that many people to apply. Listen, this was passed in twenty sixteen. That's a long time ago. That is seven years ago. So there was like, I listen, I will fault the government 10 ways till Sunday about if you're going to need all these people to get going. Yes. Like you should be ready to have all this stuff get processed, but that doesn't mean that you get a buy now. Like you should still be working your way through this paperwork. Sure. But so do you think that 12,000 farms all just got together and said, you know what, guys, let's just not do this. Like they, there's no way that 12,000 people just didn't do it because they didn't want to. I think they didn't hear about it. They didn't know they weren't informed and they weren't, the government didn't follow up, right? They should follow, like I get communicated to, like if I owe the government money, they get in touch with me right? They come after me. And this is something that it sure sounds like they, they didn't do. I think so they when they heard us talking about water and water restrictions and water sustainability and how you're going to need a license, they just thought it didn't apply to them because I would want to know something that impacted my industry if I thought this was going to apply to me. Yeah, I think so. And I think that maybe it would just was not made clear. I don't think that I, I know that the deadline kept being extended. And I also think, yeah, that because in, people weren't doing it. <laughs> in a lot of people's minds, it was probably this, you know, uh, we need to prepare because in, in the circumstance of a drought and then the drought comes. And I mean, I'm not trying to give a complete pass to all of these farms, but I, I'll take this a step further, Simi, and I'll even say that 
even if these people all did come on and say, yeah, we knew that we needed to get this license and we just didn't do it because we don't care, we should still give them an exemption because they're growing food. It's not like they want to use the water for a water park. Listen, I wouldn't argue for an exemption. What I'd say is apply now. And as long as you've applied, you can keep doing this. And we'll worry about the details later. Like you should still have to apply. You don't need, I don't think you should get an exemption. You can fill out the application. It can get processed six months, a year from now. But as long as you have applied, I think you should be able to continue doing what you're doing. I think that that sounds fair. As long as they say, and you can show proof, hey, I can go on. I applied. Here's my application number. Right. That that works for a lot of things. Oh, I've applied. OK, I get now. We have to do it. I understand. Sure. Sure. The, Here, the here's my application of, number. Like taking these people who are make, producing food. Right. We're in a state of like inflation. Uh, we need to be f- food secure. There's talk of like food insecurity as the drought goes on. And these people want to produce food for people in the province. And we're saying you can't do that. Like, what's the point in saving all this groundwater if we're not going to use it for one of our most important things? Right. But the whole point of licensing the groundwater and making sure we know who is taking what is that when there is a drought, we can allocate it to where it's really needed. Right. But not the water park. Right. right. So the water park. No, we can shut off the water park and say the farmers need the water. Right. But we can't do that unless we know who is taking the water. But we can't just shut the farmers off and say like, oh, we think it's you guys. So we're just Just going to shut it off. We don't know unless they apply for the license, Scott. But having the license doesn't actually tell you how much water is in the ground. No, it tells us, tells them how much water you're taking, the size of your operation, how much water you're taking so that they can monitor that. Remember this, like this was happened because BC had no regulations in this regard. We're trying to get caught up here with other jurisdictions in doing this. For sure. I just don't think that you can open, you can just open it up and say, hey, you guys didn't do it. You're all cut off. Like fines, 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 fines. There has to be a transitionary period. I get that it's been six, 10 years. I actually don't think, I don't believe anybody would be cut (laughs) off. I don't. I think they're just trying to get people to apply. I think people need to apply, but also stuff like this doesn't get done unless people raise concerns over it. That is fair. Yeah, I, right? I will. We, we can they agree on that point. Yes. We can agree on that point. And here we are. We're worked up. Exactly. Well, I hope farmers definitely get this worked up. Nobody wants, you know, I don't want to see anybody have to stop farming as a result of this. I think the government can be a little flexible in that as long as you have applied for the water license, we'll work the details out. But you've got to get that application in. I do have a, a request out to the uh, Minister of Forests to try to uh, get the other side of this story. So hopefully we'll hear from him soon as well. I would love to hear that because, yeah, they should they should be a little more understanding, but people still have to apply. I think there's a middle ground to be found there somewhere. A middle ground. What a, what an idea. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we'll see. How often does that get used? Uh, Scott, thank you for that. If you want to weigh in, send me at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. You were younger, just starting out. Did you worry about your credit score? I mean, did the first place that you ever rented ask you what your credit score is? You know, for this generation that is just kind of getting out there on their own, the credit score has become absolutely essential, especially when it comes to finding a place to live. Like landlords across the country are demanding a score in the 700 plus range, even though anything above 660 is considered to be good. So tell me. When you were in your early 20s, did you even worry about your credit score? Do you even think that you would have had a good one when you were in your early 20s? It is tough out there for this younger generation. So we wanted to talk more about it. Joining us now is Stacey Janczyk-Olekski, the CEO of Credit Counseling Canada. Stacey, thank you for being here. Amy, how are you? Good. Thank you for joining us. Listen, how important is this credit score to this younger generation right now? You know what? It is important. It's important for a couple of reasons, right? Because what a credit score is, it's a predictor of how likely you are to pay back your debts, right? So, you know, you've got employers that may want to look at it. You've got landlords and certainly, you know, lenders, if you're looking at mortgages, who want to see how reliable you are at paying back your debt. So it has become quite important. Right. But, you know, when people are young, that is when they tend to make mistakes. And but, you know, you learn as you get older, but it feels like they can't even afford to make those mistakes anymore. 
You know what? It is very challenging for young people. I think that we also have to recognize that there's been a lot of advertising around credit and credit scores and getting your free credit report and free credit scores. So I think that adds to young people's pressure because to your point, you know, in our 20s, that is the time to kind of explore, not hopefully not make tons of mistakes, but, you know, you've got a bit more space and grace to make some mistakes. But, you know, when you're needing high credit scores for renting, you know, that becomes even more challenging. Yeah, no kidding. So what are the credit scores and and how are they used today? Absolutely. So as mentioned, so a credit score is a predictor of how likely you are to pay back your debt. And so that number ranges between 300 and 900. Obviously, 900 is better than 300. And what it's doing is so people are using it to see if you are a reliable, if you reliably pay back your debt. It's different than your credit report, though, which is a detailed history of, you know, all the products you've ever had and then how you've behaved with those. So it's important to differentiate. And, you know, what we also have to understand with credit scores, Simi, is that they actually change, you know, every couple of weeks. Like as you get paid and maybe you pay down your visa, your credit score may go up. But as you, you know, get through the next couple of weeks and you put more groceries on your visa, maybe your credit score goes down a little bit. So we're getting worked up about a number that actually shifts a lot. Right, but a number that is critical, Stacey, to young people yeah, these yeah. days, because if they want to even live on their own and try to apply to go rent somewhere, the landlord's checking their credit score. They are. And so, you know, my recommendation is, you know, we need to, you know, first of all, be aware of who's looking at who's looking at your credit score. Nobody gets access to your credit score unless you give them permission. So that's the good news there. But then who do you want to give permission, right? So a landlord, for example. So, you know, you have to determine what's needed for credit scores. And then how do we get there? What's the path to building good credit in a safe, you know, responsible way? Okay, how do we do that? You know what? There are a couple of ways, right? We can, if I get a cell phone contract in my name, that will build credit. So not a pay-as-you-go, but it has to be a contract. So that builds credit. So that's good news. I could get a a secured credit card. So let's say I save up $500, put it down at my bank, and I get a credit card for $500. That will build credit because I'm using it, you know, and paying it off. I can also get an unsecured credit card, keeping the limit, you know, fairly low so that I can get out of it, you know, if something happens. And, you know, using it and paying it off every month, ideally, if people can do that, then that's how you build good credit. And good good credit just takes some time and it takes consistent behavior. Right. But again, we're talking about very young people here. I have a lot of sympathy for this very young generation because they can't do a lot of these things without this credit score. And it takes a long time to build this up. When does this information start being collected about us? You know what? When we start getting credit. So uh, let's say I'm 18 and I don't have any access. I don't have any credit on me. Okay, so then when someone pulls out my credit report, if I've given them permission, and then it's not, there's not going to be much to show, right? So that's why I want to start building credit by doing, you know, safe and responsible things like a small cell phone contract, a small credit card, and using it and paying it off. That actually will build credit. So Some utilities can build credit. It depends on the company. So that's where we have to check. But it is challenging. You're absolutely right, Timmy. So paying off your credit card every month, is that the way to build better credit? Like paying it off completely in full? What I would say is that's a great habit. If you can get into a habit of, you know, spending whatever you want to spend and then paying it off every month, that's awesome. Here's what's interesting about how it reports in credit, though, is that if you pay off your credit card in full every month, Timmy, it will report as a one on the trade line for your credit card. So that's on your report. And so a one is the best you can have, right? A one rating. It means you are on time and on track with your contract. You could pay off less than full and still it would report as a one so long as you're within your time frame. You could make the minimum payment and it will still report as a one. So what we see is people with really great credit, but they actually have a lot of debt too. Because what they've managed to do is service, service the debt with minimum payment. Stacey, that doesn't make any sense. <laughs> I know, right? The whole point of having a credit score is that you're going to be reliable. And if, it, if you're only making minimum payments, you can still have an excellent credit score. That doesn't say anything about your ability to pay, really. I would absolutely agree with you. And I think that's why, you know, I think, you know, culturally, we need to shift our, our, our thinking around 
um, credit scores, that it's not the be all and end all. And that if I have a great credit score, then I'm a good person. And if I don't, then I'm not. You know, they're, they're mutually exclusive um, concepts. And credit isn't everything, right? You can have bad credit and still be a completely functional adult. And you can also rebuild bad credit into good credit. Well, you, you, you may know, have just had some bad luck, that's all. And absolutely. then it just feels like this thing is going to be following you around. The good news is, is it doesn't follow you forever, right? So when I, let's say I, 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 have, I go through a big life crisis and I cannot pay my credit card anymore. I stop making payments. You know, my credit card company is going to want to work with me, right? Because nobody wants bad credit and my credit card company doesn't want that either. They're going to try and work with me. But if that can't happen, then there are alternatives for people to get help. So get out of debt, get, you know, get some peace of mind and some, you know, some calmness because that can be really stressful and then learn ways to rebuild. So it won't stay on their credit report forever. Right, and depending but, on the pro- the province that they live in, you know, it could be six or seven years um, after last payment where things actually fall off credit reports. But I'm thinking that, like, if you're 18, 19 years old, you need to think about this. Like, and I think that's shocking that, that 18, 19 year olds have to start thinking about building their credit score. Well, to your point earlier, Simi, right? I mean, I don't know about you at 20, but I certainly didn't even know about credit scores, let alone learned about them or how to manage it. I always thought it was so, an American thing. <laughs> I think it, it probably is, you know, I, I'm not an expert on that, but, you know, it's become so much more important, especially for young people nowadays that we, you know, I don't know how old you are, but, you know, I wasn't, I, that wasn't a part of my life at 20 years old. Yeah, I don't, yeah, that's what I worry about with this generation. No wonder mm-hmm. they feel like they can't get ahead. Listen, Stacy, thanks for talking to us about it this morning. My pleasure. Absolutely. Have a good day. That's Stacey Janczyk-Oleksky, who is the CEO of Credit Counseling Canada, talking about how younger and younger people need to have a good credit score. And we are talking like ideal credit score, 700 plus range when 660 is considered to be good, just to be able to rent a place. Landlords are now picking and choosing people with these good credit scores. And imagine what you were like at 18, 19, 20, 21. Would you have had a good credit score at that age? No, probably not. Like, Are we asking too much of young people? No wonder they can't get ahead or they feel like they can't get ahead. If you want to weigh in, simi at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. We are weeks away from starting another school year and there will be some changes for parents for sure. You know, for decades now and three different political parties forming government during that time, BC has been toying with the idea of not using letter grades and replacing it with what's called anecdotal reporting. And now it's finally happening. So for kids up to grade nine, no longer will those kids get letter grades. Instead, they will hear that they are emerging, developing, proficient, or extending. What does that mean? Does it give you a good idea, a real understanding of where your child is at rather than seeing A, B, C plus, C, C minus? These changes have been in the works for a long time. It was started under the previous BC Liberal government, continued with the NDP government. They are plowing ahead with this. But of course, there are concerns. So to talk more about all of this, we're joined by Nathan Rickey, a doctoral candidate in the Department of Education at Queen's University. Nathan, thanks for joining us. Hi, Simi. Thanks for having me. What do you think about getting rid of letter grades? Um, I have a lot of thoughts about getting rid of letter grades. Um, Yeah, where to start? I think that ultimately it's a good move, if I were to summarize it. I think that, um, you know, while people are very comfortable with grades and while Um, you know, it's something we're familiar with and they sort of give this sense of objectivity or precision. Uh, There are a lot of really well-known issues with grades, um, which I can talk about in more detail, but I think the biggest is that it fuels this sort of grading obsession, which we know is harmful for students' well-being and learning. Um, So ultimately, I think that, you know, finding ways to reform grading systems and find different ways to communicate information about student learning is really critical if we're going to support better learning and better well-being in our students. Okay, let's talk a little bit more about what you think is harmful. What is harmful about the letter grading? Yeah, so there's a a few different things. I think that, yeah, the grading obsession would be the the biggest thing. So this is a pretty well-documented phenomenon that I'm involved in in researching right now, and it's pretty ubiquitous across education contexts, not just in in Canada, but abroad as well. And um, it's basically the idea that because grades have such high consequences for students um, and in some places for teachers and for schools as well, Um, There's a lot of emphasis put on grades rather than learning itself. 
So the idea becomes school is about getting really good grades and students really focus on that um, rather than focusing on learning. And, and um, those things aren't always, they don't always go hand in hand. So if you're focused on, you know, doing well on assessments and doing well on tests more than learning, you might be driven to what we call shallow learning approaches like memorizing information and uh, learning, you know, sort of test strategies that are helpful on tests, but not really helpful in the real world. And, um, you know, it's very possible for students using these strategies to do really, really well on a test, um, but not really have a meaningful understanding of the concepts that the test is supposed to be assessing. So, um, yeah, I think that in a grading system, it really puts a lot of pressure on students to perform on these tests, and that really shapes the way they learn. And we also know it drives things like test anxiety and depression among students, um, you know, because they have such high consequences for students. Right. So here's here's where I see there might be a bit of a concern with that, Nathan. Like, as these kids get older, high school, grade 11, 12, perhaps heading for post-secondary, are we not doing them a disservice, though? Because they're going to get into university, and they're going to get graded, and they are going to be tested and that are they not then unprepared for that yeah absolutely potentially i think that um i don't know fully the the ins and outs but i think that we won't necessarily see testing and assessments disappear in um, bc schools i think those things will still be there ultimately what i think the intention behind the proficiency scale is to do is to shift the emphasis away from you know these sort of snapshots of learning these tests or assignments that students complete which get graded and then those scores are formed into a composite, which makes up their grades in the class. I think we're trying to move away from that into more of a system where we recognize learning is a continuous process, which is reflected in the proficiency scale. And teachers, I think the important part is they're being encouraged to use a variety of forms of evidence. So uh, including in-class observations of students' work and learning, uh, discussions with the students themselves, and student self-reflection, so getting the students to reflect on and share about their their interpretations of their own learning. And all of this stuff we know from research is, is really critical in accurately understanding how much students know. Because if we rely too much on tests and assessments, we're really focusing on certain skills like memorization. Um, students who have severe test anxiety are likely to not perform as well on tests, but that doesn't necessarily represent their learning accurately. Um, whereas if we know as a teacher this student performs well in these concepts in the classroom, this system allows me to sort of leverage that evidence a little bit more and provide a more sort of contextualized and informed understanding of their learning. So, But does this um, give kids something to strive for, right? Because let's face it, they, that is the way, you know, we are wired. We get into high school, they're going to need a goal to set. They, maybe they set a goal of what they want to do. And does this actually tell them how they are doing? I guess that's a, a great question and something that I think is really um, yet to be seen. I think ultimately that the, I really like the intentions behind this reform, but what it comes down to is really how it's implemented, how teachers and administrators are supported in, in implementing it. So um, I think it's, it's really hard to, to make a prediction on that front. Hopefully, you know, with enough time and sort of gradual rollout of this, um, students will have a chance to be accustomed to, you know, grades, I guess, letter grades back when they're in grade 10. And that'll give them a chance to prepare for it for university. But ultimately, I'd like to see this kind of reform spread into universities and stuff as well. It is, it is a big challenge because, you know, we have relied on grades for so long as like an efficient way of sort of communicating learning. Right. But, but you just, know, like, Nathan, any, like guess, any form, they you, have their downfall. Can you understand, though, why parents and students would be concerned about this? Because you're talking about big, big changes. And it does sound, even the way you're describing it, like we're kind of we're in an experiment here, but we are experimenting with with kids and they're going to perhaps get to a point where it didn't work for them and they may have lost out on some op opportunities there. Yeah, potentially. No, I totally understand, um, you know, parents' concerns and everything. And I think whenever we see reforms to grading, we see similar concerns and yeah, uh, you know, it's, it's totally valid that, um, you know, students may have trouble adjusting to the changing systems as they get into the higher grades. Um, but yeah, I do think the spirit of sort of rethinking how we grade and communicate about learning is important. I guess ultimately, like when it comes to grades, they're just one way of, you know, assessing students and communicating learning. The really important communication comes in between the grades. So if a student gets a certain grade and then that sparks conversations between the student and the teacher or the student and the, the parents or the parents and the teacher, that's where we really get an understanding of ooh, what went wrong here or what's going really well. And then that's how we support learning going forward. So um, it's the same with the, the new proficiency scale. I think as long as it's provoking those conversations, it can be really effective. 
Um, but yeah, if it's just sort of another way of grading and just kind of becomes, we're just sort of changing the name of an A to well, yeah. uh, an extending, then that I think is sort of the potential downfall or pitfall of this approach. Isn't that just what people are going to do though? Because they're going to need some kind of mm-hmm. marker, right? You can't just do pass fail and people won't have any idea about how their kids are doing. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, you know, it will serve as sort of like that initial marker, but again, I'm hoping that, you know, just like with grades, ultimately we want those markers to, to be a jumping off point for conversation because you can't communicate the totality of students learning and sort of where they're going and what they need to do next in one letter grade or something like that. Hmm. All right. It's more interesting discussion. Nathan, thank you for your time. Thank you so much for having me. That's Nathan Rickey. Now, Nathan is a doctoral candidate in the Faculty of Education at Queen's University, obviously a believer in getting rid of letter grades and moving more towards a system. But I got to say, I'm not convinced. I'm still not convinced. And that's what we've been trying to do. We've been trying to find different ways of looking at this to see, well, what is the justification for moving in this direction? What I see is we're kind of experimenting with this group of kids. It's like when we experimented with, oh, they don't need to learn cursive writing. I remember my my son was in that group. He didn't learn cursive handwriting. And now as an adult, he can't like he he struggles with it. And I see it and I think, God, that was a mistake. And now they're starting to teach cursive handwriting again. So I worry that this cohort is being used as an experiment to see if this works, if it doesn't work. But it's going to have real life consequences for them, right? As they get older, perhaps aim for post-secondary or whatever the case may be. We will continue this conversation though, because this is a change that is going to happen in BC schools this September for kindergarten right up to grade nine. This is Mornings with Simi. It's time now for Making Sense of the Markets with Laurie Pinkowski. Laurie is a senior portfolio manager at Canaccord Genuity and joins us now. Good morning, Laurie. Good morning, Simi. How are you? I'm good. Thank you. How are those markets doing? Yeah, markets are down slightly today, uh, kind of half a percent to the tech-heavy NASDAQ, down uh, just over 1%. And that's really because um, of a few reasons, but uh, investors are kind of waiting for uh, the inflation data that we're going to see out of the U.S. tomorrow. What's expected is that it's supposed to rise slightly to 3.3%. Core inflation is expected to hold steady at 4.8%. And so everyone's kind of you know, wanting to see that inflation number, uh, you know, be reduced even more than it has. Because you think about last year, I mean, we were close to 9% in the U.S. for inflation. So so we are seeing better numbers, uh, but still not down to that 2% target uh, that the Fed wants. And in Canada, um, just some economic data there, building permits rose by 6% uh, from a month earlier. Uh, which is kind of surprising, right, when you look at it. But what, when you look kind of under the hood, uh, residential permits uh, slumped slightly. But uh, what we're seeing where there's a surge is uh, by over 20% uh, was increases in the industrial and institutional segments, so, so such as hospitals being built and so on. So, so that is um, good news uh, out of the real estate market, I guess I would say, uh, on the Canadian front. Okay, but there is a little bit of concern about what's going on in the U.S., isn't there? Because of the downgrading of, of the the banks, apparently, in, in there? Yeah, you know, credit agency Moody's cut the ratings of 10 small and mid-sized U.S. banks and put some big names on downgrade watch. And, you know, of course, it's understandable, um, given what happened this spring. But, you know, to us, the timing and rationale seems rather delayed, uh, you know, after the collapse of those uh, few banks there that we saw in that uh, mini banking crisis. And so, you know, since that time, banks have survived two earning cycles and, and many banks have proven to have pretty good earnings, um, as well as the Federal Reserve's annual stress tests, um, which really helps assure Wall Street and investors of the durability. Uh, many regional banks also opted for intra-quarter updates as well, just to kind of, um, you know, soothe investors and and depositors uh, at, at the same time. And so what we've seen is that deposits have stabilized and, and even increased in some of these uh, mid-tier banks. So again, markets were down less than a percent yesterday. Uh, banks were down maybe a little more, but at the end of the day, investors kind of took it in stride because uh, it's kind of like old news at this point. And, uh, and that goes the same uh, when we saw U.S. debt uh, being downgraded. Um, you know, markets really didn't react that violently or negatively, even though the media will get all over it and, and kind of spook um, some novice investors. But realistically, when you take a look at some of these downgrades, um, it's not as uh, 
I don't want to say important. Um, it's still, you know, important to watch, uh, but not, uh, you don't want to overreact to news like that. Okay. And let's get the update on earnings too, because there's been more of these coming out this week. Yeah, you know, over 85% of companies on the S&P 500 have reported uh, with about 80% reporting better than expected earnings. So again, you know, when you think about late last year, investors and everyone was talking about, you know, the uh, recession going to hit in the first quarter or the second quarter. And of course, we have not seen that yet. It doesn't mean it can't happen. Uh, but we've had a pretty strong, um, you know, first half of the year and earnings are reflecting that as well. And we saw Berkshire Hathaway reported strong quarterly results. Shares moved higher there. Uh, Tyson Foods, the meat processing company, um, they uh, missed on earnings and revenue estimates. But again, shares were only down like, you know, less than 3%. Restaurant brands, which includes Burger King and uh, Tim Hortons, which, uh, you know, of course, Canadians love their coffee. Um, they topped market market estimates for quarterly earnings and sales. And uh, Ontario's electricity provider, Hydro One, uh, beat on earnings and revenues this morning, and the stock is up about 1% on the news, and we own that one. So so again, it's, it's, you know, it's been better than expected. I think investors are a little surprised uh, how resilient a lot of companies are in this environment uh, with higher inflation, higher interest rates, um, a tight labor market, all those sorts of things. And you still see a lot of companies beating expectations. So that's good news. And uh, we'll be looking forward to the next round of earnings and, and for Canadian earnings as well. Okay. And one of the big companies, of course, is Apple. But I understand that there's some concerns about Apple. Why? Yeah, you know, I think Apple's a good one to talk about just because a lot of, well, everyone's familiar with the company, uh, but a lot of people bring up the stock. I mean, it, it represents uh, almost 8% of the S&P 500. And this is what you and I were talking about, um, you know, over the last few weeks. A lot of these mega technology or consumer companies uh, really represent a lot of the S&P 500. So where they go, uh, the S&P 500 goes. And that's why you've seen it uh, kind of stretched for the first half of the year. Um, and so when you talk about Apple, they have a super loyal customer base. You know, they have 25% profit margins. Um, their monthly pay services business has grown to over 20% of their total revenue. So there's a lot of good news surrounding Apple. Uh, however, this is a company that we kind of sold the rest of our position a little while ago, um, close to the high there. And, and the reason we did that, one, we're active managers, right? We don't believe in just holding on to huge companies or good companies all the time forever because they go in and out of favor. And you can see uh, that a lot of these tech companies have done really, really well uh, year to date. I mean, Apple was up 50% uh, year to date. Um, you know, they've now corrected over 10% since they hit that mark. And when they reported, what we saw was revenue had shrunk um, and has shrunk for three quarters in a row when compared to the year earlier. And global cell phone sales are going through a bit of a slump. And you think about the iPhone, and I don't know what kind of phone you have, Simi, but um, you know, a lot of people are not upgrading them every year anymore. You know, it's uh, uh, the average person holds their phone now for two and a half years. There just isn't enough reason to really upgrade uh, every year when the new iPhone hits. Well, and, and it's so, so expensive. I think they've kind of priced well, a lot of people right out of it. Well, that's exactly it, you know, and so that's why people are holding on to their phones longer. And so this is, again, a, kind of reflects that Apple is a great company, right? They're going to be here for a long time, but it doesn't mean it's, it's the, you know, the best stock to own in the current environment, right? If you see revenues declining, phone sales declining, um, you know, th th something to think about that, uh, you know, we ended up taking our profits on Apple and we'll look to buy it back. It goes, back on our buy list. And, you know, for patient investors, a return back to kind of the 200-day moving average is something that we look at, um, would be about $160 a share range, would probably be a bargain at that point. But again, remember, this is a prime example that nothing goes straight up forever, whether it's technology, whether it's industrials, financials, whatever it might be. And so it's important to stay diversified, but also take a look at taking a profit, even if it's a company you love, right? Never fall in love uh, with a, with a, with a stock and make sure that you're taking your profits or taking losses if necessary. And again, Apple's a great company. Uh, we've owned it, we've traded it. Uh, but at this point for, for our portfolios anyway, in our opinion, um, right. it was overvalued. We took some profit and we'll be looking to re rebuy back later on. 
Can I just also ask you, Lori, um, about entertainment stocks in general? Like, are they not doing as well right now because of the strikes that are going on and, and all the all the problems there? Yeah, exactly. We we touched on that last week. Yeah. It really depends on what what companies that you're looking at, um, but uh, they are going to be Im- impacted. And you know, depending on what uh, what you mean by entertainment, but we did talk about like Cineplex in terms of you know movies coming out, things like that. Uh, you know, that is a a, a big deal. Um, you know, where is the new content going to come from? And you know, other uh, other companies such as Netflix is supposed to benefit from from something like this because they have a lot of saved up content that. Uh, uh, hasn't been out yet. And so how long is that going to last for though too, right? So um, Netflix is something that we own and we'd be looking at taking a profit on uh, going forward if this continues on and on and on. But it's already, you know, they've been a huge amount of time and uh, and it's going to cost uh, those companies a lot of money. But, uh, you know, when we looked really under the hood, I mean, it's a lot of the actors and writers that are, are really having a hard time at this point, right? Not getting paid and nothing being set up for the foreseeable future. So uh, so I think that's an industry to watch. But again, it's probably going to be an opportunity when you look at it going forward, right? You just got to pick your spots. And that's what we'll be looking at doing as uh, active managers for our clients' portfolios. Okay, Laurie, thank you so much for that. Thanks, Emmy. Stay dry. <laughs> I've tried to today for sure. Lori, thank you. That's Lori Pinkowski, a senior portfolio manager at Canaccord Genuity. Now, if you would like to talk to her about these financial issues and questions that you have, you can contact her team at 604-695-LORI, or you can visit their website at pinkowski.ca.